From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, here comes U.S. bank earnings. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where we're looking toward Lithuania as President Biden heads to the NATO summit. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We weigh up monetary versus fiscal stimulus in China and whether Beijing is actually prepared to loosen the purse strings. I'm Caroline Hepke in London, where we're looking to the Chancellor's Mansion House speech and whether he delivers on a UK growth fund. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with second quarter earnings season beginning this week, and that means big bank earnings to kick things off. And for what to expect and why, we turn to Allison Williams, senior analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, the major Wall Street banks turned in pretty solid results for the first quarter of this year. Things may be a little softer this quarter, and there are several reasons why. One, higher interest rates just this past week, approaching 7% for long-term mortgage loans, putting the squeeze on loan originations, weighing on commercial real estate. Uh, That's one. What are your thoughts on how that may impact things? Higher rates have provided a big boost uh, to banks, much of which we saw in 2022. But now we're starting to see the downside of higher rates, which is that the bank's cost of funding is going up. And there's uh, two key reasons, one of which is deposits. The price of those deposits uh, is rising. And then secondly, deposits are flowing out of um, sources such as um, free checking uh, or low-rate savings accounts and flowing into things like money funds. So there's there's a shift happening, you know, within the mix um, going to money funds, going to CDs, and then um, across all deposits, though that cost of uh, deposits is going up. Now, also, continued caution after this spring's banking crisis and failures of a signature bank. We had Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank, now part of J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, some say still unresolved, this crisis. How has that impacted the major lenders? So part of it really, I think, has been a wake-up call to consumers that maybe haven't looked for, um, haven't looked at their deposits in a while. And so part of it is that um, sort of accelerating that, that shift 
into higher yielding deposits, which is good for consumers, but not as good for the banks that have to pay those rates. If we look at the broad landscape, we had heard from most of the banks in April that things had sort of stabilized. And so I think that stability continues. So um, we the concern was really um, very significant deposit flight at a few banks. So things were um, extreme in those cases, but the but the broad trend for the for the banking industry continues. The second part of that is uh, bank investment portfolios. Um, you know, this was another issue that that led to some of the problems at the banks during the pandemic. As those balance, deposit balances swelled, they were invested in securities. As rates have risen, those securities are worth less than they were. And um, so as rates move up, uh, we'll continue to see some pressure on those portfolios. A dearth of deals this past quarter. The IPO market nearly non-existent. Mergers few and far between. I mean, is this a real concern for lenders as well? So for the banks broadly, it's really um, the big uh, six universal banks, if you will, um, that are most impacted uh, by trends in the global investment banking landscape. So that's fees as well as trading. And of the big, big six, um, it, it tends to be a, a smaller part of the business for Wells Fargo, though they did have some very good results last quarter. So on the investment banking fee front, as you know, we had a, a, a really solid year in 2021, record levels in businesses like um, M&A and IPOs. Last year, things softened, and I think the banks were still hopeful that things would pick up. Uh, coming into this year, there were um, some some very optimistic expectations uh, built into estimates. But as things have progressed, it's looking like um, those fees are going to be steadying at much lower levels. Now, we did see some signs of life in the IPO um, market in the quarter, High yield is also an area where we've seen um, some very good issuance in the quarter. Um, But M&A, which really sort of held things up last year, has really now turned into a headwind. So on the fee front, we do expect things to be weaker. The question is, how are the banks making adjustments to their headcount? Because all of last year, the banks really did hold out hope and keep that headcount steady. They had to really scramble to... Uh, ad bankers when things were going really well, and they were hesitant to sort of let those people go. But I think now we are seeing um, some adjustment by the banks in terms of the expectations going forward that things could be soft. Well, let's talk about how the banks, big ones, small ones, 23 in all, navigated the Federal Reserve's latest stress test. What was different this time? So for the big banks, Really, it was generally pretty positive. All Five of the six banks are going to see their capital requirements come down as a result of the stress test. So Citigroup is the outlier. Their stressed capital in the tests um, actually looked a little worse, and so their requirement is going to be going up. I think one thing that is highlighted by the results both this year and last year is just uh, the volatility that we're getting in terms of capital requirements for these big banks. So last year, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Citigroup all 
saw very big increases in their capital requirements. They had to um, very rapidly um, shrink their balance sheets um, to make sure that they were going to comply with the newer requirements. This year, for the most part, it's the opposite again. Um, City was a little bit of a different story. But also, uh, there's these big changes that we're seeing, but then also the banks are trying to understand um, some of the numbers that we get from the the Fed are so different than the tests that they run themselves. And so, in particular, Bank of America, which had a a very significantly um, better result, um, it's not going to fully translate into a lower ratio because there there, there is a minimum there. So a lot of that had to do with changes in their other comprehensive income, and they are talking to the Fed to try to understand why their number is so much different than the Fed. And at the Fed's meeting, just now uh, the following week after earnings start, we're expected to see some new proposals on bank capital requirements. Is that right? That is that is correct. We're waiting um, for the the big banks are waiting to see what we're calling um, the Basel III endgame. Uh, so the finalization of some rules, which um, Powell did confirm, could lead to the banks having to hold more capital. And so that's another reason why that the, the stress tests were sort of um, you know one piece of information uh, that we have for the for the near term, but the banks are conservative, uh, we think, on buybacks, um, despite the good results from the test for most banks, because um, they don't know what's coming from these endgame rules. I would say that um, these rules will obviously be phased in over time. Um, The banks have a significant amount of capital that they're generating every quarter and every year to meet these higher requirements, Um, but it is a question uh, that the banks are looking to be resolved. Wow. Well, let's talk then about these uh, some of the individual banks that are reporting later this week. J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, those three giants. Uh, Allison, what are you expecting to see? And, and and will they be different, those three? Or are we going to see sort of a similar pattern? So I think we'll, we'll see sort of a similar pattern um, as we saw last quarter. Net interest income growth still is very strong. So the issue is is really not that it's weak. It's just that the strength is slowing, if you will. And so um, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and Wells Fargo, we think, are all still going to be able to – are going to be the bigger beneficiaries there in terms of seeing revenue growth and operating leverage. Um, For Citigroup, on the cost side of things, uh, you know, they're – they're still working through um, some regulatory issues, what they call the transformational costs, and so um, that will eat into their ability to post operating leverage. And then on um, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, because these banks are much more capital markets focused, we're seeing trading normalizing. Uh, we discussed the weaker fees, and so um, the, these banks may also have severance costs. Um, as they adjust their workforce, and so less um, positive for those banks. Oh, Allison, a lot to look forward to. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, President Biden and U.S. relations with NATO. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, a look at China's struggling economy and what to watch for this coming week on that front. But first, President Biden has been working on rebuilding closer relations with some NATO countries after the Trump administration's emphasis elsewhere. Now, for more on why we'll be watching this in the coming days, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On host, Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, all eyes will be not on Washington this coming week, but Lithuania where the NATO alliance is set to meet with a focus on Russia's war in Ukraine. U.S. President Joe Biden will meet with his counterparts about future security assistance and economic deterrence and the future of the alliance as well, as Finland officially enters the group and Sweden faces stubborn opposition from Turkey on acceptance. President Joe Biden actually, in advance of the summit, welcomed Sweden's prime minister to the White House this past week and praised the prospect of his country joining NATO. The United States fully, fully, fully supports Sweden's membership in NATO. And uh, the bottom line is simple. Sweden is going to make our alliance stronger and has the same value set that we have in NATO. And uh, really looking, anxiously looking forward for your membership. Now, Sweden's foreign minister also spoke to Bloomberg TV after meeting with his counterparts from Turkey and Finland at NATO headquarters this past Thursday about his hopes for completing a session. We are now closing in uh, towards the summit in Vilnius next week. It is uh, my and the Swedish uh, government's uh, hope that we will now see uh, a um, clear response from the Turkish side so that the ratification process can start in the Turkish parliament and Sweden can become NATO member. All right, so let's talk more about what is to come from this NATO summit. Joining me here in Washington is Justin Sink, who covers the White House for us here at Bloomberg. So, Justin, at least for President Biden, what is his primary objective at NATO this coming week? Is it Sweden? I think Sweden's a huge part of it because for President Biden, the ascension of Sweden and Finland into NATO is is represent, representative of uh, a new sort of uh, block against Russia. For a long time, those uh, Nordic states had stayed neutral, not wanted to pick sides, actually really celebrated the fact that between Russia in the United States or Russia in the West, uh, they were a neutral party. But the but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sort of jambled politics in, in those countries that are now looking uh, at what happened in Ukraine and worried about their own defense. And so getting them into the NATO alliance is a big symbolic move uh, for President Biden, who has really sort of stressed that NATO has gotten larger and stronger since the invasion, contrary to what he believes uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin thought going in, which is that NATO would splinter under an attack and that there right. wouldn't be sustained support for Ukraine. So if what President Biden wants is to get Sweden into this alliance, it's a question of what he's willing to give up to make that happen, right? The issue of F-16s and Turkey. Do we have a full understanding of where exactly the administration comes down on this? 
It's a little tricky. I I do think that there's broadly support within the administration for giving Turkey F-16s, despite some of the uh, problems that they've had with Turkey adopting Russian technology uh, into their military platforms that have caused sort of problems with the NATO alliance through the years that, you know, even with those concerns, there is support from the White House for these F-16s. But there are Democrats on Capitol Hill, including mm-hmm. Senator Menendez, of who chairs the Foreign Relations Committee, who is opposed to the sale. And it will take some real legislative strong arming from the White House to get a possible deal through, particularly if everybody is upset with Turkey because they're holding up Sweden's membership. Mm-hmm. And so Turkey doesn't want to move first and, and potentially lose out on these F-16s because they've already sort of publicly said that they'd accept Sweden. But in the U.S., you know, both Democrats and Republicans are, are skeptical about authorizing this defense deal unless they have that sort of in hand. So obviously it's a tricky situation. And frankly, we might not even be talking about Sweden trying to join NATO or the U.S., you know, trying to put forward that effort, if not for the war in Ukraine, as you were uh, alluding to. So Ukraine has to feature highly on the agenda as well. Expansion of NATO aside, what else are we expecting to come from this summit regarding Ukraine specifically? I think there's two things that we'll really be looking for. One is what the new stepped up uh, defense packages that the U.S. and, and other allies are shipping to Ukraine Shortly before the summit, it was announced that the U.S. would start providing cluster bombs, which have been controversial because um, of how they are not as sort of precision-guided as other uh, weapon systems, and that can lead to collateral damage. But it's something that Ukraine has said could be really helpful to them, especially in areas where Russia has sort of dug in on the battlefield. So that was a big concession. Ukraine is always pushing for more supplies Uh, new types of supplies, bigger supplies. And so that will be an area to look. And it'll especially be interesting within the prism of the sort of 2% of GDP goal that that NATO countries have long set, but long, for the most part, failed to sort of reach up to. And so uh, a less tangible, but almost a significant thing will be if there's new language about that 2% goal and whether it becomes rather than an aspiration or a ceiling, a floor for defense spending for NATO countries. Is there a real conversation to be had or currently being had about Ukraine becoming a part of NATO? Because obviously, given the articles of the alliance, an attack against one is an attack against all. And this is a country that is at war, which makes that a highly complicated proposition. Yeah, it's a a huge question, especially because Ukraine is very eager to uh, enter the alliance because it would offer them Um, new protections and sort of trigger um, a more aggressive potential response from uh, the West. But at the same time, you know, the United States is and many of its allies are very wary of uh, escalating the current the current conflict beyond what is already obviously a sort of tragic and sweeping uh, situation. So I think what we'll see is language that, you know, post-war may make it much easier for Ukraine to enter the alliance. This is, even before the invasion, been an aspiration of theirs and Mm -hmm. um, a long and winding path to get there. So there's no doubt that uh, President Zelensky and and some of the countries that are really close to Ukraine, like Poland, are going to be pushing hard uh, on this front. But 
it's unclear how exactly it's all going to shake out. Yeah, and it's very unclear when post-war even exactly. will be. We have yeah. no real uh, end game that's in sight at this point. And as the war is ongoing, just talking about the composition of the alliance and who really is at the helm, Jens Stoltenberg's going to be sticking around for a while longer. There's for a real, year. He can't you know, get once you get in it, though, it's all California. Yeah. Um, he uh, is sticking around because the the alliance could not come to a consensus around a replacement candidate. Um, the UK had put forward a candidate. There were other candidates uh, within Europe, and uh, there had not really been somebody that everybody coalesced around. And, and part of the reason is that we didn't see the U.S. sort of pick a side. There, there have been reports, though the White House has flatly declined to comment on them, that um, we were upset over the UK sort of pressuring um, us and, and other countries into uh, going forward with the F-16 program for Ukraine, which uh, there was a, a genuine concern that it could escalate the conflict. And so as a, as a result, um, it may have resulted in, it may have resulted in the U.S. not uh, backing the U.K. bid to, to lead NATO. But a big conversation among leaders is going to be who can bring the alliance forward mm. Stoltenberg's not going to be there forever, and they need to, to find a consensus candidate. All right. So it's a busy week ahead for President Biden and for those who cover him, like our very <laughs> own Justin Sink, who covers the White House for us here at Bloomberg. Thank you so much. Tom, we'll send it back to you. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, what's next for China's economy? I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Next, we look at China's faltering recovery. Can policymakers crack the code and unleash the animal spirits? Let's get to Brian Curtis, co-host of Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Tom, investors are dropping their expectations for gains in Chinese assets this year. Now, there's a wealth of disappointment in the measures being taken to try to revitalize the Chinese economy. Despite calls for more aggressive stimulus, policymakers, at least at the moment, appear to be sticking with targeted measures. 
What might change that? We've got a lot to discuss. I've asked Tian Chen, the team leader for FX and Rates in Asia, to join us here on the program. Tian Chen, thanks very much for being with us. Well, the PBOC has extended its support for the yuan with some of these stronger fixes that we've seen of late, but this is really more about arresting the decline in the currency. It's not really about stimulus. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about why the PBOC wants to address that decline. Yes, of course. That's a good question. So basically, PBOC is is in a very um, difficult dilemma right now. Um, so the PBOC knows that if the yuan is weak, when the economic fundamentals are weak, a weaker currency is going to help the economy because it's it's a big support for the exports sector. Um, but at the same time, a very weak um, yuan means that we are going to see financial instability because a very fast decline in the yuan, that means that it's going to spill over to the stocks market, it's going to spill over to the to the bond market, and that's going to prevent foreign investors from buying Chinese assets. So, um, so in this dilemma, BBOC has to strike a balance of, you know, keeping uh, the yuan weak, but not so weak that's going to trigger any sort of panic. Um, that's why you are seeing this. You, you, we are in this situation where the PBOC is supporting the yuan with stronger than expected fixings, but the bias, I mean, that's the actual fixing versus the, the Bloomberg estimate. The bias is not very big. It's about 300 pips um, every single day, and that's far away from the levels that we saw last year where it went to as high as 800 pips. Um, so the PBOC is only taking very moderate measures to support the yuan, and it has a ton of tools they can use um, to be more aggressive when it sees the yuan being too weak. Um, but right now, the PBOC is really um, keeping its powder dry, just using the fixing with a little bit of verbal intervention. Yeah. Something else you didn't mention, which has been an issue at times in the past, is capital flight. Mm -hmm. uh, but they have made a number of moves on this front to keep capital from flowing out of China, but still must be in the back of everyone's minds. Yeah, there's still pent-up demand to, to take capital out of China. Um, remember that onshore investors, onshore residents, they can only convert uh, 50k of US dollars into the uh, of, um, of US dollars um, they can only buy 50k of US dollars um, so that's not a lot of money like if you want to buy an apartment in Hong Kong that's that's like it can only buy you like one square square feet or something <laughs> so so it, it does it does it is the curbs are very high. I mean, once the, the curbs got dropped, we are going to see a lot of outflows happening. Um, right now, we haven't seen very recent measures of the PBOC tightening macro prudential measures on the on the corporate side. But when it wants to, it can, you, you really can do that. Now, people ask me sometimes, you know, how uncomfortable is the PBOC with you on weakness? And I think you've outlined that, well, there's a balance there. A slightly weaker currency is actually good in some ways for China, stimulating exports and such. But they do have the these other concerns. But where does it get uncomfortable for them in terms of like at the moment we're around 725 and change against the greenback for the offshore Chinese currency? Where would it have to be for all of a sudden more aggressive measures to come into play? Um, I think it's going to be 7.3 uh, mm. because that would be very close to the the low in 2023, uh, to, uh, 20, uh, 2022 last year in November. Um, so if we reach that level, that's gonna the yuan's gonna get a lot of interest um, from shorting overseas. And um, another thing that we have to watch out for is the RMB CFS index. Um, that's yuan's value against not just the dollar but a bunch of other FX. Um, so if that basket keeps falling, that means the yuan is falling against. 
a lot of things. Um, so that's really going to hurt trade. Um, so that's another thing the PBOC is looking at. And of course, hurt behavior. In now, in terms of the other area of what can the PBOC do to actually help stimulate the Chinese economy? Interest rates is one thing, and also the triple R's is another. Uh, how, how much do we expect more aggressive behavior here coming soon? It, it is pretty hard. The PBOC has done a lot um, already, and it's not doing more because there's nothing else it can do. I mean, the, the triple R cut, of course, it can. It can cut rates further, but that's just for a sentiment, like for to to restore market sentiment. But is it going to be useful? It's not going to be useful. Because the problem is that the demand is very weak. Uh, no matter how much rates the PBOC cuts, um, if an investor, like if a Chinese individual doesn't want to buy a new home or doesn't want to buy a new car, she's not going to buy the new car. Um, so th- what what needs to be done right now is fiscal policy. Like the, that's, mm. that's not under PBOC. That's under the Ministry of Finance. Um, so if that's, if we see more fiscal stimulus, local governments start to sell bonds and to build infrastructure that's going to stimulate the economy, but that's going to carry risks. Like in 2008, during the financial crisis, the the, the massive stimulus package um, resulted in a lot of local government debt and other issues, and obviously the government is aware of that. Yeah, we heard a lot uh, from Richard Ku from Nomura Research Institute about uh, how fiscal stimulus should be done in China. Mm-hmm. And, and, and basically, um, even if they wanted to do that, uh, what are the constraints uh, for strong fiscal stimulus that the government feels? <clears throat> yeah, um, there is a side effect for fiscal policy. Um, if you let local governments to sell a lot of uh, bonds to, that, to, to build infrastructure like highways and then subways, uh, when in the end they have to repay the debt mm. in like ten years' time, and um, China is already having a massive um, local government debt problem, and we have LGFVs facing re- issues. We have credit risks with corporates. So that's 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 that is well, it can resolve the problem. Maybe stimulate economy today, but years from now, it's, it can be a bigger problem for the government. In terms of institutional strength in China, I wanted to ask you about uh, Pan Gongsheng, who has been named uh, the new party secretary for the PBOC, and we think will become the next governor of the PBOC. Uh, now, he was not on the list of, of the Central Committee, uh, the 200 highest-ranking party officials. Uh, in any way, does that weaken the institution of the PBOC? We already know the PBOC has been put under the state council, right? So from that standpoint, it would seem to have a little bit less independence than it did before. Um, How do you see it? That's definitely right. Um, That's the interpretation a lot of people are getting from this change, Um, not just from Pan Gongsheng. It's been going on for a while. Um, So before Pan Gongsheng, in the Yigang age, um, they have Guo Shuqing as the party secretary, um, and Yigang's level as PBOC governor is being seen as less important than um, Guo Shuqing's role as a party governor. And it still remains a mystery. We don't know whether Pan Gongsheng is going to be the governor, but the party secretary is definitely a bigger boss. Um, than a governor job, um, and the the role of the PBOC is is becoming less and less in, independent for sure. Um, now it's under the state council, and starting from years ago, um, before the PBOC cut triple R, you can always get some sort of um, a spoiler from the state state mm-hmm. council saying that oh we think the PBOC should cut cut triple R soon, and two days later the PBOC does that. I wonder how much it matters in that power really flows from the very top anyway in China, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's it 
it is the all the, the government agencies are to some extent losing a bit of a power and it's it's quite concerning if this is happening to the PBOC. Tian Chen, thanks so much for joining us. Tian Chen, team leader for FX and rates in Asia. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we turn to the U.K. economy and one controversial idea to get things going again. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. The UK needs to boost economic growth, and one strategy being pressed amid a dearth of London IPOs is tapping the cash in pension funds. It's thought that a plan may be announced by the UK Chancellor next week at a major City of London event. And for more, Let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor, Caroline Hepker. Tom, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's Mansion House speech is a set-piece event of the financial calendar in London. This year, though, may be particularly important for the pensions industry, with big pension funds potentially agreeing to invest up to 5% of their assets into unlisted UK companies to provide better returns and grow the British economy. Well, for more on the story, I'm joined by Bloomberg City editor, Catherine. Griffiths. Welcome to Radio. Catherine, great to have you with us. Lots of focus then on the Lord Mayor of London's initiative, his idea, £50 billion, a future growth fund. Who do you think is actually going to be in favour? Will it get rolled out in this speech? It probably will get rolled out in this speech and it's kind of all to play for um, in the run-up. There's lots of different conflicting groups. Um, Some are quite in favour, some are not. Even within the same industry, among the insurers, which is the group that are really affected by this, some are quite keen on the idea of signing up and allowing about 5% of their defined contribution pension funds to go into growth assets. But some are really kind of holding out and saying that it could be quite problematic. So it's going to the wire ahead of the speech as to what the details will actually be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, How do you think it's going to work, though? Is it going to be mandatory? Is it going to be a nudge, a deal? So I think it's not going to be mandatory. So Nick Lyons, who is interestingly of the industry, he is the chairman of Phoenix, which is the UK's biggest pensions provider. He was suggesting that the contributions could be mandatory. He says that's not his preferred option, but they could be mandatory. He's not a fool. The reason why he raised that quite contentious idea is because if insurers and other asset managers are not forced to hand over these funds or to direct them in a certain way, they may not do it. A decade ago, the Cameron Osborne government tried to do something really quite similar. The whole project just didn't go anywhere because the insurers and the asset managers and the the pension funds just couldn't really agree on the terms and who to Mm. invest in and how. So that's where this mandatory idea came from. But it's been killed, certainly, in the run-up to the Mansion House speech. But as you say, it's all sort of quite fraught with difficulty. I mean, to my mind, um, I think back to one of London's star investors, Neil Woodford, who only a few years ago ran into huge difficulty with um, much less liquid 
liquid investments in uh, in UK assets. And it's it sort of di- did for him in some ways. So I guess maybe you could think of that as being a kind of a risk. Sure. And actually, yes, I think the industry says, look, it's all very well to want to invest in these startups and illiquid assets. But you have to face the fact that the rate of failure is higher in those areas. They are inherently riskier. And the counter argument there as well, you know, you invest in a wide range and over time things come good. But when you're talking about people's pensions money, there is clearly a problem. The pressure though is on the government to deliver better growth. We've seen, you know, months of anemic growth. Bloomberg Economics now expects a recession in the fourth quarter of this year. So that pressure is on this Chancellor and the Prime Minister. The pressure is massively on and I suppose they would say the hope and some in the city would say too that the hope is to kind of create a virtuous circle where you do invest more in the UK and they hark back to say 20 30 years ago when pension funds did invest in UK companies and so of course if you've got that kind of bank of money being invested into UK companies the chances are those companies may do better their valuations will rise that in turn of course is good for their owners so the hope is to create that virtuous circle. Catherine thank you so much for being with us Bloomberg City Editor Catherine Griffith and I'm Caroline Hepke here in London you can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London that's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.